Well, if you have your Bibles this evening, we're turning to Psalm 6. So if you'll find your place there, we're turning to Psalm 6 together. The title of tonight's study is a question, How Long, O Lord? How Long, O Lord? Have you ever been in a situation in your spiritual life where you had that same question? If you live long enough, you will. For many of us, we regularly come into a crossroads, if you will, where we consider this question, how long, O Lord? But particularly, we find the meaning of this question uh, here in the text. And so if you'll find your place there, and we'll read it together, Psalm 6, and we'll get the text in our hearts and minds so it give us a proper framework to work through. The superscription says this, A prayer of faith in a time of distress. The psalmist says this, he says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Verse 4, return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. This is the word of God. When we consider the attributes of our God, a, a question we often uh, contemplate as we study through the book of Psalms, because the Psalms are God-centric. The psalmist regularly focuses on the glories of God and who God is. But by way of introduction tonight, we must remind ourselves that our God is a holy God. You could say it like this, holiness is the chief attribute of God. Now, I want to clarify, because oftentimes we'll say God is not out of balance in his attributes. Like in other words, God's justice is not, uh, does not outweigh his love, and his love does not outweigh his justice. God is equal in all of his ways. He's perfect in all of his ways. But yet, with that being said, if you were to reduce all of God's attributes down to one, you could say it this, God is holy. God's holiness purifies in a sense. God's holiness, you could say God's love is not just love. God's love is a holy love. God's wrath is not just God's wrath. God's wrath is a holy wrath. That means it's without sin. It's absolutely perfect. God can do absolutely no wrong. God is a holy God. That's why in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the angels reduce their worship and their praise in glorifying Him by saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, in the same way that God is holy... Those who are his children, those who are his disciples, God says to them from the beginning and gives them the instruction, Be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. Leviticus 19.2. Leviticus 27. But this is not just an expectation for God's people, Israel, under, say, the law or the Mosaic covenant. 
This is an expectation and an enablement by the Holy Spirit of God in the new covenant as well. Consider 1 Peter chapter 1, 13-16, where Peter gives the teaching to the church. He says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but notice here, but as he who has called you is holy, so God is a holy God, as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, he then quoting, going back to Leviticus, be holy, for I am holy. Let's just hit pause there for a second. This, this is like antiquated. I'm not saying I believe that it's antiquated, but you just think about it in our common vernacular and our terminology in the church today. Holiness, like we don't often talk about holiness. Holiness gets right to the point. What is holiness? What are we talking about here? Is it man-made rules? Is, is holiness a dress code? Is holiness where you don't go and where you do go? Is, is holiness what you're known for what you do not do? We could go on and on. Because many people think of that when they consider the topic of of holiness. But put it bluntly, as we continue in our study through Psalms, the call for holiness requires the believer to live a pure and separated life, like what was described when we looked at Psalm 1, 1 through 3, that way of the godly, a life that is rooted in God's word. What is a holy believer? What is holiness that arrays the believer's spirit in his mind and his life? It's one that he walks in the fear of the Lord. It's rooted in scripture. It's rooted in truth. It's not rooted in men's wisdom. It's not rooted in the way of the ungodly. But it's one that finds its source in the truth and scripture of God's word. Being led of God's spirit into that truth. And then conforming, as Peter says, conform your life to this. Conform your life to the truth of scripture. Now as we look at this. David is invoking this idea of who God is. God is a holy God. But here, David comes before the Lord because there is obviously something wrong in his life. And we can consider this question. What happens when a believer, a child of God, falls into sin? What happens when we intentionally commit sin? Boldly. The Psalms often describe it as presumptuous sins. This is a sin. We know it's a sin. This is a sin we commit many, many times again and again and again. So what happens when a believer falls into sin intentionally at times? What happens when a believer fails to acknowledge and to confess his sin before God? What does his life look like, we could ask? Well, one thing you will see is that if you are truly a child of God, is what we see David giving us in this portal here, you will experience the chastening hand of God in your life. God is a loving God. If you're truly his child and you are a believer, you are a child of God and you sin, you sin intentionally, you sin ignorantly, God will bring you into a knowledge of that sin. That is why we say so often, search me, O God, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and try me, know my heart, heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. This is why Jesus in his own teaching tells us to examine ourselves, to make sure we are in the faith. So what happens? What happens is we begin to experience the chastening hand of God. Look with me just very quickly to Hebrews 12, verse 3. Because Psalm 6 is an unusual psalm. And so to, uh, this is the last verse that we'll look at to build the, the backdrop. But look with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. 
Because when we turn back to Psalm 6, we'll begin to see David unpacking the inner turmoil of a child of God under the disciplining hand of God. What does he feel? What does he experience? And to set that up, we need to remind ourselves that this is not just an Old Testament thing, as many like to immediately call out. Listen, friends, this is a biblical thing. God's love for us as his children, as you're turning to Hebrews 12, is not a pampering love, you could say. That's a type of love that we're prone to do as parents. Our love is, is not like God's love. Our love reaches, goes beyond a point to where it, it begins to spoil. It begins to ruin. And we often joke about it. We often talk about maybe how maybe the youngest one, the last one that comes along, is the one who is spoiled. We get that. But what you have to understand when it comes to God's perfections and God's love is that God's love is, is, is not a spoiling, pampering love ever. It's a holy love. And because God's love is a holy love, it is a perfecting love. That means that God, if we are truly his children, will not let us continue and stray away from him. We will experience his chastening hand in our life. Consider with me Hebrews 12, verse 3, where we see the command, For consider him who endured hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Quoting from the Old Testament now, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Well, that's all we'll read for that passage. But the point we're trying to make is that, listen, a true sign that you are a child of God that your profession that you recount as saying why you are a Christian is real and valid is that when you sin, you know it. It's there's a cognizance. There's more than just a, a saying, well, we're all broken. We all make mistakes. There is a peace that is lost going back to, as we turn, if you'll turn back to Psalm 6, I'm going to turn back to Psalm 29 that describes the opening call to worship that David so loves to pray for. Given to the Lord, oh, ye mighty ones, given to the Lord glory and strength. What we're about to see here in Psalm 6 is that's exactly what David has lost. What God delights in giving his children is strength, sustaining grace. When God delights to give his children peace, as verse 11 of Psalm 29 says, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Just consider how wonderful that verse is. It's a verse to keep away, tuck away, and to memorize when you are struggling, when you are seeking the Lord. The reminder that he gives peace, and he delights to give the gift of peace, reconciliation between our soul and the Savior. He delights to give sustaining grace and strength. All of these things that David loves to praise the Lord for, he has lost, as we'll see in our text here this evening. So if we turn back to Psalm 6, what we see here is penetrating insight into the life of David. It's a reminder that the Holy Spirit has inspired this text to teach us 
for our learning and our admonition. Now, many like to surmise of when this was in David's life, but just to get to the bottom shelf for sake of time this evening, this is an unspecified time in David's life. We don't know what the cause is. We don't know what the sin is. But what we do know, according to this text, is that David has persisted without acknowledging his sin before the Lord. David is in a period of prolonged unrepentance, you could say. And the consequences that David begins to pray through as he comes before the Lord, the consequences of his unconfessed sin is absolutely devastating. And as we enter into David's personal life with the Lord, friends, we can recall as children of the Lord times where we have either experienced this or if you're a younger Christian who is new to the faith, store up for yourselves this wisdom because when this crushing weight comes upon you when you are living in unconfessed sin, remember Psalm 6, as it will guide you to seek the Lord. This Psalm of David does not actually record David confessing his actual sin, but it's, it's understood within the context. We see here that it is the first of the penitential Psalms, and it is the most unusual of the penitential Psalms. The penitential Psalms are those confessions of sin Psalms, you could say. When we examine our hearts, when we prepare our hearts for the, the Lord's table, we turn to passages like Psalm 32. Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, and others. And these are called the penitential psalms where David gives us verbiage, gives us a guide. David is our tour guide, if you will, to what biblical repentance looks like. What we see here is that what is very clear is that there is conviction of sin. There is physical affliction as a result of unrepentant sin. And here we see that there is no plea of innocence from David. David doesn't make excuses. Here we find why David is a man after God's own heart. We see some ingredients as to why David is called that. David always owns his sin. Maybe not immediately, as we'll see here, this is a period of unconfessed sin. But David always owns his sin. And when he reaches the breaking point, he immediately turns to God. He immediately is restored and he immediately is concerned with the glory of God and the renown of God. We're going to frame our thoughts very quickly over two main points. Number one, the problem of unconfessed sin. And secondly, the power of confessed sin. Verses 1 through 6, we see David's problem, and it is huge. Problem of the, the problem of, of unconfessed sin. And what we see here in verses 1 through 6 is that sin brings about a sense of loss. Every time we sin against the Lord, there is loss that is present. There is a weight of guilt that is sensed, but not only sensed, that is felt. There's no such thing as neutrality in our relationship with God. We're either walking with Him in unity and harmony and unison, you could say, or we are at odds against Him. And God is not the one who leaves us. It's what we'll see here is we are the ones who leave God because of our willful sin. The first thing we see described here is that David's problem, his unconfessed sin, is this sense of loss includes a loss of divine pleasure or relationship. This speaks of the spiritual realm. Notice what David says in verse 1. He, he asked the Lord, these are a series of petitions, he asked the Lord not to do things. What does he ask him in verse 1? He says, do not rebuke me in your anger. In other words, I've been feeling it. I feel the weight of my sin. Verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Secondly, he asks of the Lord there, he says, do not chasten me or discipline me 
in your wrath. In other words, relent, O God. I feel the weight of your blows. I feel the weight of guilt. He knows he's lost favor with God. He's painfully aware that he is under God's loving discipline. He's aware that God is displeased with him. And so David cannot come to him like we saw in Psalm 29 and like we see from most of our calls to worship. These exaltations to come and taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Oh, taste, David says, and see the glory of God. Oh, taste and see his goodness. Come and worship the Lord with me. Come and magnify the Lord with me. That is the normal response. That is the normal Christian life, you could say. But this is not it. So David's problem is defined by a sense of loss of his relationship, speaking spiritually between him and God. A second thing we see that is lost here is physical strength that he articulates. This points to the physical realm. He cries out for relief from God's painful discipline. And we learn two things here. Verse 2, he says, Oh God, would you restore my strength? What God delights to give to his children, I have lost. Your sustaining strength, literally the very strength of my life, the very energy that I have, is gone. Lord, would you restore me? Another thing he mentions there in verse 2 regarding his physical condition is, Lord, would you heal my bones? The indication here is that David is so physically weak that he is faint, suffering the loss of drive and energy, the ability to rule in in a healthy way as king. And so he comes to the Lord, knowing that he has deserved what he is receiving from God. And as he comes to the Lord in verse 2, he begins it with, Have mercy, O Lord. Again and again, as we've seen week after week on Wednesday nights, David appeals to the mercy of God. And friends, it's a reminder as we come to God with a prayer of repentance, we come on the basis not of our righteousness, but his mercy. Not on the basis of our service for him, not on the basis of some type of comparison, uh, comparative transaction, some type of scales, if you will. Lord, I've taught Sunday school for X amount of years. Lord, I've served you in this way. Surely this counts for something. That's the way of the legalist. That's the way of the person who is a works righteousness, earning favor or attempting to earn favor with God. That's not what David does. He appeals to the mercy of God and says, Oh God, have mercy Upon me. This reference, verse 2, to his bones literally is a, a Hebrew poetic way of describing the whole of his inner stress and turmoil. And this is David's very serious problem the loss of divine relationship or pleasure, you could say, the loss of physical strength. Another thing we see, thirdly, is the loss of emotional peace morally. Again, remember the reference in Psalm 29 God delights in giving his people peace. Where does peace come from? Peace comes from sins dealt with in salvation, robed with the righteousness of Christ. When we are saved, when we're born again, friends, and heaven is our home, when we experience the power of the Holy Spirit, our relationship with God turns from judge to father. But here, that relationship is affected. He says, my soul, verse 3, is troubled. It is in anguish. And then in verse 3 as well, he says, my soul is impatient. He says, how long? Will this state or this reality last? That's a great question, isn't it? Listen, it's interesting. God is the one who never leaves us. He never leaves or forsakes. God's mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is unbelievably immeasurable, poured out upon us. 
So when we ask the Lord, how long will this situation last? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? And God can proverbially say to us, how long? When will you not return again unto me? If you study the minor and major prophets, what we heard from a minor prophet on Sunday, the book of Habakkuk, if you move into the book of Hosea, you will see a continual question repeated in the writings of Jeremiah, and it's this, the Lord instructing his children, return unto me, and I will return unto you. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. The, the context there is return unto me in repentance. The only prayer I will hear from my wayward children is this, the prayer of repentance. And that reality is that God has never left. When you return unto the Lord, there he is with open arms, a loving Heavenly Father, ready to forgive, ready to restore. Sin is an amazing thing. Sin makes us not think clearly. Sin makes us the closest that we are ever in this life to being insane. People in sin, Christians in sin, the children of God in sin begin to do things that are unexplainable. We could go through just the life of David and remember where he pretended to be insane. Running away from God's will, his plan, and going to the Philistines and, and driveling down his beard. That's what sin looks like, folks. We'll begin to manipulate and try to work things in our own way. Sin brings about, you could say, a, a temporary insanity. And so David's lost all of his peace with God. He says, my soul is, is anguished. My soul is impatient. Lord, how long will this, will this last? And it's a reminder to us that sin, the pleasure of sin, takes away the peace of God. Friends, there's not enough money in all the world that can buy the peace of God. There's nothing more valuable in all the world than the peace that only God can give. And you could put it like this, the pleasure of sin takes away the peace of God, and the peace and contentment of God takes away the pleasure of sin. Choose you this day which one you will have. Here David his, finds his soul discouraged and downcast and in deep dismay, and this is going on for an undefined period of time. We don't know how long this is, and this is why many people think this is David's period of unconfessed sin, with his sin with Bathsheba, where he just continued to go through the motions, continued to rule at court, continued to go through all the things that he would normally do to, to rule in the gate, until finally the day would come that God would send Nathan the prophet before him. We don't know that. It's easy to say that's what it is, but that would not be correct. We don't know that for sure. Quite frankly, I think the Holy Spirit inspires. I, I truly believe this is a different account. And I believe the Lord shows us that this is an example of what the Christian life looks like. This is what it looks like time and time again, how David can be a man after God's own heart and yet experience seasons of unrepentant sin. And let's not sit here tonight and act like we've never experienced this ourselves. David is echoing, if you're truly a child of God, what it looks like to go through the motions and to walk in this way. Now, this phrase that he asks of the Lord, excuse me, how long, is very interesting. It's used 16 different times throughout the Psalms. But it's a very interesting construction of language. In other words, it's, it's, it's constructed to, we're to stop in a very similar way that, that the word selah is, to stop and to meditate on that, although that's not the command of the word. Every time it's used in Scripture, it, it speaks of a highly emotional moment. And therefore, it tells us that it is David's heart. It is a very deep pain and deep emotion. The, the term is called apostiopesis. I knew I was going to struggle with that. I practiced it. I still messed it up. 
It means this, sudden silence, unplanned silence. And it occurs at a number of pivotal points in Scripture. The first is in Genesis chapter 3 at Adam and Eve's fall, where God is meditating on, you could say, God is considering the full effects of Adam and Eve's sin. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see it used for the very first time in Scripture, where God is considering the state of Adam and Eve, and then he considers the tree of knowledge, and he moves from the tree of knowledge to the tree of life. And the text, the grammatical structure there in Genesis 3, says that, in a sense, God stops and just thinks about it. It's interesting. Not that he's discovering something new. The decrees of God tell us that God is never learning and never coming into knowledge. None unto God are all his works, even from the beginning of the world, Scripture says. But the point is, is it gives a gravity to the text. It gives a weight to the text that God is, is just stopping and pausing. And the second time it's used in Scripture is when Moses came down from the mount with the tables of the law in his hand after he receives the law from God. And he comes down and sees the pagan worship that the children of Israel are partaking in. Immediately, he flung himself on his face before God. And he begins to intercede for the people of God. He begins to cry out to God in anguish. And he asks the Lord, he says this, he says, Oh, the people have sinned a great sin. And they have made for themselves gods of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, and then there's this silence, this pause, the same one that David uses, how long? And then there's an interruption in the words of the sentence. Moses does the same thing, and then Moses finishes his pause of emotion by saying this, And if not, blot me out, I pray you, O God, out of your book. That famous prayer that Moses prays in Exodus 32, where he asks the Lord to either spare them or condemn him. So those other uses in the Old Testament helps us to understand the gravity and the weight of it of here, Psalm 6. But you, O Lord, how long? David senses a, a weight of, of sheer horror, of wondering, what if I'm never reconciled to God? What if God judges me in my sin? What if God chooses to take my life? Because I am his child. God loves me, and I have not repented of the sin. Maybe the Lord will call me home. David has a sense of profound thought, grief, and meditation. So this loss of divine pleasure, secondly, the loss of physical strength, David's problem is, includes a loss of emotional peace. And then verse 4, a loss of intimacy with God, where he says in verse 4, Return to me, O God. We've made reference to this. Return to me, O God, and save me, O God. Return, O Lord, deliver me. O Lord, save me for your mercy's sake. Again, the second time that he invokes the tender mercies of God. Now notice what he calls the Lord here. He calls him by his personal name, O Lord. As a matter of fact, if you just kind of take a gander at the text, we see it one, two, three, four, five, I believe five or six times where he uses the same personal covenant name of the Lord. Literally rendered, it's Yahweh. If you're using the Christian Standard Version or the Legacy Standard Version, I know some of you are, your text will more than likely say Yahweh. That's his personal name, his covenant name. This is a, his name of relationship. And he's asking the Lord, he's asking Yahweh to restore him in accordance with the tender mercies of God. God's deliverance from his discipline. Psalm 51 verse 1, David prays a similar prayer when he says in that famous prayer, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Would you have mercy? This is David's famous prayer. And friends, it guides us to know how to pray in pure repentance. Have mercy upon me, O God. His mercy is our only hope 
It is our only plea. In fact, every person you meet in this world, there are only two kinds of people. It's those who put their hopes in their own systems of redemption or human systems of redemption or work righteousness or those that completely rest in Jesus, the mercy of the Redeemer. A fifth thing that he mentions here that is lost in verse 5, there is a loss of physical life. This is David's fear. David knows by the law of averages this is where he's heading. He's heading to the grave. And he says in verse 5, he says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave who will give you thanks? This is an interesting, interesting verse. David here expresses maybe an unclear understanding of the doctrine of the resurrection. Whereas Job had a clear grip on the doctrine of the resurrection. He said, in my flesh, I will see God. Though, though worms eat my body, in my flesh, one day I will see God. I think here's the, the quick reconciliation factor here. David, although he wasn't maybe here in the text as clear on the doctrine of the resurrection, knew that he had a redeemer, knew that his redeemer would come. But David's consuming passion is one of a worshiper. His bent is this, Lord, if I die, who will give you the glory from me? In other words, you have made me unique. You have made me, you have knit me together, Psalm 139, in my mother's womb. You know every single thing about me, and only I can give you the unique praise that I can give you. David has a passion for the singularity of his own worship before the Lord. It's, it's not in pride. He simply has a passion for his God. In fact, in Psalm 159, if you remember, he says, Oh God, would you forgive me? And at the end of his confession, he says, So that I may teach sinners of your ways. David has a passion for being reconciled and getting back on track. Friends, it just reminds us that sin is not our final, uh, is not our final reality. Repentance brings us back onto the proper track. God's grace, when we repent... Gets us back on the path again. We are restored. Maybe things will not be the same depending on the sin and all the nuances of all those types of things. But in the broader scheme of things, David has a passion for his God. And David knows that if he dies, he cannot make much of Jesus. He cannot magnify the wonderful name of the Lord. He cannot give, as he loves to say, the glory that is due to him the debt, you could say, that he owes him, he will not be able to fulfill that. He will not be able to give his breath back unto the Lord. And then in verses 6 and 7, he describes this affliction that is upon him as the loss of physical sleep. The loss of physical sleep. In verse 6, he says, I groan all the night long. I grow weary with my tears. So here, David gives a complete, comprehensive knowledge of what unconfessed sin in the life of a, of a believer looks like. He's already told us that God delights in giving his children or his beloved sleep. He's already made mention of these psalms of the night, if you will. And here in this psalm, Psalm 6, he makes mention of the fact that sleeplessness could be, for the child of God, unconfessed sin in their life. In our day and age, when we struggle with our sleep, we're quick to try to get to the physical cause of it, aren't we? We're quick to try to solve, did I drink coffee too late? Did I drink too many Mountain Dews today? Did I stay uh, with digital technology too late into the night? And that blue eye, did it, did it mess with my brain waves? And my, now my REM sleep is all jacked up or all that type of thing. We should start thinking in the sense of physical health. But friends, what about the spiritual? That's why we come before the Lord and say, Lord, 
Don't let me go to sleep with unconfessed sin. Let me review my day. Lord, if there's anything that I need to make right, Lord, let me repent of it. Let me confess it. Tomorrow when I see that coworker or see that friend, I need to make it right. Let's keep short accounts with the Lord. Here David describes another aspect of this. His very serious problem is a loss of physical sleep. So here we see, number one, the problem of unconfessed sin. And then as we close out Psalm 6, we see it. This is what makes the psalm so interesting. We don't actually see David's articulation of his sin. We don't see a full-blown model of repentance like what we see in Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51. But David has a sense of being heard. He tells us, in fact, in verses 8 through 10, that the Lord has heard his prayer. And so we see point number two, the power of confessed sin in verses 8 through 10. Notice with me, his, we'll, we'll begin in verse 8. He says, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. I've come clean before the Lord. I have poured out my soul to him. The Lord has heard, second time here, the Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Verse 10, let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. When you read the life of David, it's, it's fascinating. I'm in the middle of 2 Kings right now, just in my own devotional reading. And this morning, I read at the beginning of 1 Kings, at the end of, excuse me, of 2 Samuel, where just problem after problem arises. At times it's, it's, it's Joab, at other times it's Adonijah, at other times it's Shimei. But David is constantly under the threat of enemies. Enemies in his own house, enemies at court, enemies in, among the people. And here David's power is coming from his being made right with God. His inner man is right. He has a confidence. He has a boldness. He is made right with God. And so he can turn towards those who wish his demise. In verse 8, we see his confidence towards men. Because he has been made right with God, he can then say boldly, verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Notice why he can say that. For the Lord has heard me. The Lord has heard my prayer of repentance. The Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Friends, listen. Confidence and boldness and reconciliation with God comes on the hinge of repentance. comes on the hinge of weeping. Spurgeon calls the tears of the Christian liquid prayers. I like that. Here he says, the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. And now he has a sense of boldness. He has a sense of confidence. There's a confidence in the child of God, in the man and woman of God, that, that the world cannot take away. The song says like this, there's a peace in my heart that the world never gave. It's a, it's, there's a peace in my heart that the world never gave. It's a peace that cannot be taken away. It's a peace that the Lord gives. Circumstances don't touch it. Cir circumstances cannot affect it. Proverbs 14, 26, a verse we quote often here, in the fear of the Lord, there is a strong confidence. And this is the confidence that David feels. Verse 27 of Proverbs 14, in the fear of the Lord, there is a fountain of life. David is rejuvenated, experiencing this fountain of life, experiencing this fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 7.18, it is good that you grasp this, Solomon says, and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Here we see David's confidence towards God and towards men. Verses 9 and 10, he announces, the Lord accepts my prayer, and then the Lord avenges me. The Lord attacks my enemies. Friends, as we conclude Psalm 6, this is inspired scripture for us as people. It's a unique psalm. It's a psalm that's interesting to try to preach and teach because 
our bent is saying, Lord, this is inspired truth in Scripture, but Lord, will you apply it to our hearts in the here and now where we are right here in Kingston, Tennessee in, in 2022. As we consider David's, an insight, you could say, into David's discipline of repentance, it's a question that leads us to ask very quickly as we conclude tonight's study. Is the spiritual discipline of confessing our sin to the Lord present in our life? Is the spiritual discipline of confessing our sin before the Lord present in our life? Or is the spiritual discipline of confessing our sin public only? What Jesus exposes. It's the only time we confess our sin in front of the eyes of other people or when people can hear it. Is our confession of sin before the Lord, first of all? And then... Is it before the eyes of men? In other words, those that we have offended. In other words, it's not just a show. It's genuine. We, we go to individuals that we've offended. We, we go to them and say, I have sinned against you. We examine our hearts and our life. I'll tell you this. I'm, I'm a younger pastor, but in my young ministry, I've never seen anything that I've ever emphasized and taught that's more hotly contested than this right here. An angst, a point of contention, a point of anger, all of which, friends, I would just say, if we feel that, points right back into, do we truly know the Lord? I would say it like this. Friends, let's give thanks to the Lord for the rhythms of grace, where we have opportunities as we come before the light of God's truth every single day to say, search me, O God. Lord, take the mirror of your word and show me my sin that I may confess it, that I may grow in your grace and knowledge. Thank you, Lord, that I get to come together with the people of God and pray in unity and harmony and in love, knowing that, Lord, you hear our prayers. Listen, you can't pray with the people of God if you've sinned against the people of God. Could it be that people don't come to corporate prayer meetings or don't come to the Lord's table or don't come because they're, 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 they're not acknowledging or disciplining this personal confession of sin? It's a question for meditation, not for one for judgment. So our thoughts are simply this, Lord, search me. Oh God, search my heart and try me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Once we are convinced or shown the sin in our life, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's acknowledge our sin to the Lord as David does. Let's, let's pour out our heart before the Lord. Let's name our offenses to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a reminder that fellowship must be restored. And let's thank God for the rhythms that he puts into the life of the church, the rhythms that he puts into our personal relationship with him and corporately to where we have opportunity to search ourselves and say, Lord, help me to, to get back on track, restore my fellowship with you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says this, Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Notice here, nor give place to the devil. Don't leave sin unconfessed in your hearts. Keep short accounts with the Lord. And friend, if you do find yourself in a period of prolonged, unconfessed sin, then turn to Psalm 6 and be strengthened. Turn to Psalm 6 and know that there was a godly man, a man that the, the only man that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, who also found himself in such a state. But yet he did not stay there. By God's grace, he was restored. He sought God's freedom and forgiveness he received, again, God's peace. And it's why he can invite the church at large even today to say, come and magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. For we have been forgiven of our sins. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. 
And we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for penitential psalms, Lord, that serve as a guide for us, a spiritual flashlight, so that when we find ourselves off the path or have sinned against the Lord, and, and Lord, in the insanity of those moments, we often stay in a season of, of fog. Our peace is gone, our strength is gone day by day, and yet we do not return again to the Lord quickly. Father, would you give us your grace to repent freely and quickly, return again to the Lord so that we may be restored. Thank you for David. Thank you for Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us what it looks like to seek the Lord's face again. Thank you for the promise of salvation, Lord, that we will never be lost. Father, you will lose none of your sheep. You are the loving shepherd who lays down your life for the sheep. And, Father, every single one of your sheep will be brought before the Heavenly Father one day. We thank you for that. We are trophies of your grace. We have nothing to boast in, nothing to, to claim but Christ in Christ alone. He is our only boast and our only plea. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.